Welcome to the First Responder Leadership Podcast, the show where we talk about mental health and wellness in the first responder community. Thanks for joining us today. Welcome to the First Responder Leadership Podcast. My name is Conrad Weaver. I'm your host for the program, and I'm so glad you decided to join us today for this special uh, interview and conversation with Deputy Chief James Price with the Toledo Fire and Rescue. Deputy Chief, welcome to the First Responder Leadership Podcast. Thank you, Conrad. Appreciate that. How are things today in Toledo? Are things quiet? Uh, things are quiet except for a live event we have going on right now with a gas leak, a 16-inch gas main that was struck last night over at a construction site, and the uh, local utilities company is having a hard time shutting that off. So oh boy. that's still a live event for us, and we're rotating crews over there every two hours just as a, as a precaution. Yeah. Well, you know, we'll knock on wood that things stay, stay calm. <laughs> thank you. I know things can, uh, can get, uh, you know, busy in a hurry. So thank you for taking time to talk to me today on the program. I appreciate it. So back in 2014, you guys had a really had a critical incident in your city and you were the incident commander for this. Can you tell me what happened that day? Sure. Uh, January 26, 2014, uh, approximately uh, 2.45 in the afternoon, we were toned out for a structure fire uh, in an apartment uh, that was occupied. And uh, part of the dispatch transmission relayed that there were people trapped, unable to get out. Uh, I was working Battalion 1 that day, and I responded with a full complement of uh, apparatus and, and firefighters to uh, mitigate this emergency. Uh, within 10 minutes of our arrival, we were in a mayday situation. Wow. Uh, two members of the attack team, um, well, the entire attack team had been overcome by rapidly changing conditions. Um, so it was not a backdraft, but it was a flashover. Mm -hmm. And uh, the officer was able to get out. He was able to find his way out. The other two members of that attack team um never made it out of the structure. We activated RIT. Uh, in fact, we activated two RIT teams since we had two down firefighters. Uh, and eventually those members were recovered, um, but they had expired in the, in the fire. Mm, so that was right kind of early on in this fire before you really had done a whole lot there, right? Within 10 minutes when we went back and, and, and went through all the audio, it was just about 10 minutes into this incident. Wow. Um, and, and again, there were a lot of things going on. This particular structure uh, was on the backside of a convenience store, a neighborhood convenience store. It was a um, parking garage, uh, a two two car garage on the bottom. And he had converted apartments up above and he added on to the back of this structure on the first floor and put an apartment in there. Um, no plans were ever submitted, no permits were ever uh, obtained for this work. So we didn't know that from the outside, you could not tell that it was residential in nature. Hmm. Um, so in, the, in the, the final analysis, it was deemed an arson fire by the building owner who uh, went in and uh, used a flat, what they call a flammable liquid. Uh, it was gasoline. Um, and started this fire while it was occupied. He 
caused this to his renters. Wow. People he was renting to were still in it. Mm-hmm. The gentleman who lived in the second story of this, um, of this building met me on the street shortly after my arrival. I was, I was just starting to, to line up uh, a plan of action for this incident. And the resident came up to me and said, that's my apartment and pointed to the second floor unit and says, my apartment's on fire. Hmm. And since we had um, previous reports of, of people being trapped, I asked him, is everybody out of the apartment? He said, yes, except for his dog. He didn't have any information for me about the people on the backside. And I didn't recognize it from my point of view where I set up the command post that that side Charlie had apartments on the, um, on the first floor. Hmm. Uh, luckily those members got out, but they, they never, they never made themselves known to us. Mm-hmm. So you were really at, at a really tough place where you had to, you know, send in your rapid intervention teams to, to rescue your guys. And once you did that, they were expired, but then you had another, still had to put out the fire, right? And to, to we did that. So we how did. did you deal with that as an incident commander? Well, we had two life squads standing by. So when the RIT team successfully removed those victims, uh, all ALS interventions were, were happening en route to the hospital. Um, I sep- As soon as the mayday came over, I separated the incident. Um, uh, second Battalion Chief had arrived just moments before the mayday. Uh, that was Battalion 3. He was on the Charlie side of the structure. As soon as the mayday came over and we realized how many members we had unaccounted for, I I told uh, Battalion 3, I will manage the Mayday. I need you to take over incident command of the of the fire. So that's how we managed it. Mm-hmm. Um, and we kept everything on the same channel so that everybody on the fire ground would know where we were with, with the firefighter rescue and where we were with um, the progression of extinguishment. Mm-hmm. So as a leader in your department, how do you deal with just that tremendous loss you know, of, of two of your members. Well, it was, it was difficult because, and I, and I, I um, compare this to a ship going down mm-hmm. and you're on that ship and you're going down and you're looking around as the leader and you've got to keep everybody, their spirits buoyed and, and keep them focused. But at the same time, you're barely treading water. Um, I, I struggled with this, uh, for a long time and, and anybody would, mm-hmm. um, everything that, that I was feeling was natural. Um, bad things happen to good people all the time. And, and we're told that, uh, but it's difficult to be a source of support for the people that are looking up to you, that are looking to you for leadership when, when you're struggling in sorrow and loss and, 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 uh, just an overwhelming sense of of um, uh, of, of self doubt. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you know, we're our own worst critics, mm-hmm. and and that was the the case here. Uh, what the fire department did as a whole is we did our own internal review of that fire, mm-hmm. along with NIOSH, and then we published those res- the results of that study to all our members uh, and to the to the public. Mm-hmm. So we tried to be transparent with that. 
but it, it was a struggle. It was very much a struggle. Um, on top of the, the actual incident on January 26th, about three and a half years later, we finally went to court. Um, and the building owner was charged with two counts of capital murder. So not only did you have the fire and the loss, the, the line of duty death, now you have a prolonged uh, court case. Mm-hmm. And so you're rehashing, so, you're reliving some of those experiences again. Correct. Correct. And, and everybody who was called to testify, I, I think, uh, found it very emotionally taxing to have to go through that process. I was on the stand. Uh, there was a, a number of the members who were on scene uh, that day that were called to testify. Um the uh, outcome of that case, initially it ended in a, uh, in a mistrial because of some of the information that a, a investigator from the police department uh, shared the results of a polygraph test, mm. which in the state of Ohio, those are not admissible in court. Well, you can't put toothpaste back in the tube after it's out. Right. And you can't tell a jury, hey, ignore what you just heard. It's already out. So a mistrial was declared. We thought we were going to have to go through the entire process again, which nobody was looking forward to. But if it meant um, serving justice on the building owner, we were all prepared to do that. Um, They struck a deal and he pled guilty to some charges that were less than capital murder. uh, And he got a 20 year sentence minus time already served, which was about 40 months. Um, He was, I think, 64 at the time, 65 at the time that the sentence was handed down. So he'll he'll get out of um, prison when he's 82, 83. Mm -hmm. If Mm -hmm. if, you know, he survives that. So on a day like that, you know, what's the first thing you do? You know, when you're Things are wrapped up and the fire's out and you're back at the station. What, what's the first thing you do? Well, what happened in my situation, uh, the deputy of operations showed up. He relieved me of duty. Um, and everybody who was at that scene was allowed to go home. They were all put on administrative leave. Uh, I went, I, when I left, I went right to the hospital to check on my, on my two members. And yeah, the whole way there, it was only a mile and a half away. The whole way there, I um, I was praying, I was praying that uh, they would have a favorable outcome. That's why I felt my heart in my brain. I I, I knew that was highly unlikely. Um, when I arrived, there were already off-duty members that had heard what happened. They were um, present. Uh, some of the administrative staff started showing up. Um, I was told by another deputy chief at some point when you get home, start writing down everything that happened, uh, preserve that because there's, there's going to be a, um, a a prolonged investigation on this, uh, when NIOSH gets here and he wasn't, he wasn't at all, um, condemning me or, or, you know, making a, a statement that I was complicit in, in this. Um, but he said to protect yourself, start writing everything down. Mm-hmm. I got back to the station and started doing some paperwork 
Again, this run came in about a quarter to three. I got back to the station. It was probably 8.30, 9 o'clock at night. Um, I started doing some of my preliminary reports on the computer. And one of the off-duty chiefs came in and said, hey, you're not responding to any more runs. I'll take it from here. Um, and before I left, a second chief came in to make sure that, that I was covered and I could go home. So from that aspect, we did look out for each other. Um, it's, it's hard because when you, I, I had to go to, to counseling for this. This was a, mm -hmm. this was a overwhelming event for me mm -hmm. and I had to go to counseling uh, and that was helpful. I would recommend that for anybody that finds themselves in a situation similar to this. Um, what my counselor told me is you need to get back on that horse. You need to get back on that horse. You, you have to be able to lead again. The, um, your department, your people are counting on you. Um, and that was the first time in my life I'd, I'd been on the department for um, about 21 years when that happened. And that was the first time in my life, in my career, that I doubted my abilities. Mm. Um, because what had happened, um, you know, I, I absorbed a lot of that. And again, we're our own self-critics. So there was a lot of self-claim, self-doubt. Um, and, and I was critical of, of myself, which, which really wasn't fair. Um, but through the counseling process, I was able to get over that. Um, and I had a lot of support from members of the department. I had support coming in from people outside of the department. I have friends in other fire departments that, that I've met along the way. Um, the assistant chief from Cleveland Fire never met me. We, I wouldn't know him today. Um, and he reached out to me. Uh, he, he felt compelled. He said, I listened uh, in, in today's technology those audio reports uh, are on YouTube before you get back to the station. Um, and he said, I was listening to that. I, I just want you to know, I, I, uh, I've, I've been a chief for as long as you've been on your department. And uh, I, I, I applaud your composure throughout that. So that, that was good to hear from somebody, you know, um, it's, it's a struggle. Um, you, you have to get through it. And um, I know in similar cases, I've, I've talked to members in other departments and, you know, they, they turn to alcohol and other forms of, of stress relief that, that really are counterproductive. Mm -hmm. And um, I was lucky to get into counseling right away. And um, I was, I was kind of steered in the right direction. Mm -hmm. I've also How got a very strong family your, support. So in all your years of training, was there any training regarding this type of incident that that made a difference in you in, in, in your leadership? We we had gone through some mayday training and how to manage a mayday. And I had done some research on my own. I, I, I'd uh, taken some online courses, but all the training that we did. A mayday involved a downed firefighter who was able to tell you who, what, and when, or who, what, and where. Um, this is Firefighter Jones. I'm on Division Three. Uh, I've been tangled in wires. This particular incident, 
um, the initial mayday was a single syllable. If you listen to the radio traffic, it's just May in the middle of all the other fire ground. And I missed it. Hmm. The, when I caught the mayday, it was the officer who had bailed out of the division two doorway, uh, which is the only way in and out of this building, except for the window that they, they initially took on site alpha. Um, and then he shared with me how many were missing, where they were last seen and actually gave me information where I could formulate a rescue plan. So we did have training, but it did not come close to mimicking what I was faced with on that day. What was your training in regards to dealing with trauma? Um, in 1996, I came on the job in 92. In 96, I um, joined the department's critical incident stress debriefing team. Mm -hmm. So I had some training in that, but that's debriefing others um, after a traumatic event. And if you talk to counselors and, and professionals in mental health now, they'll tell you that CISM is effective in about 50% of the cases. The remaining 50%, they, they just don't respond favorably to that type of therapy. Um, but I was, I was on that team, and I had helped out. But as far as any kind of resilience training um, or anything like that, it was, it was up to each individual. There, there wasn't a lot involved in that. Now, one of the things I've done since this incident, because I don't, you know, I, I looked around and I saw some people were managing this better than others. Mm -hmm. And I think that um, falls back on to their psychological resilience and their, their psychological constitution. Can those be edified in any way? And they can. My, my research led me to believe that they can. Um, so what I do now is I go out every time we hire a class and I talked to them for about a couple hours about psychological resiliency and how you can build that up because it's it's a foregone conclusion throughout a 25 to 30 year career that you're going to have stressors and everybody's stressor is different. Um, you know, firefighter Jones might be bothered by domestic violence or, or those type calls while firefighter Smith is really bothered by calls involving children. Uh, a trauma with children. So you know you're going to encounter these types of runs. How do you prepare yourself mentally? And it's hard for me to prepare somebody else, but I can tell them things that they can do uh, to be more self-conscious of, of this process. Mm -hmm. So well, it really, in, your, in the counseling that you received, what were some of the things that you did to really help resolve some of the, the traumatic stress that you were experiencing? I was given um, a number of things to do, um, focusing on my breathing. Mm -hmm. I could feel when I was starting to get anxious about things, focus on your breathing, uh, spend time with your family. Uh, they really tell you to, to limit alcohol use at all. And that wasn't difficult for, in, in my case, because I'm, I'm not a big drinker anyway. Um, keep up your water intake. Um, I, I would try to, it's easy to isolate yourself in a situation like this. But I, I wanted to, to talk to people that I trusted. So um, I, I, I talked to my clergy. 
Um, I would meet with them. Uh, I was probably more heavily involved in prayer than I'd ever been previously in my life. Um, I've always been a, a very faithful person um, when it comes to my religious beliefs, but I, I very much got into prayer. Um, that that very um, intentional breathing, uh, I think that helps. And, and then regularly checking in with a counselor, my clergy, um, having those close family ties. I, I really relied on uh, friends, family, and my faith during this time to get me through this. How important is it for someone like you, someone in the fire service or in, in a first responder community to have friends outside of their work, outside of their job? How important is that? Well, I think that's very important because you need to be able to talk and relate to those um, things not not related to your job, not related to um, first responder work and, and firefighting work. Um, I, I think you need to be able to detach yourself from that sometimes. Um, every, everybody wants to wants a staff um, that is is involved and is keeping up on education, but you can't immerse yourself solely in, in, in one discipline where all you think about, all you read about is, is firefighting and EMS work. You, you have to expand your horizons a little bit beyond that. And that includes developing friendships um, and, and other relationships with people outside of the fire service. Mm -hmm. What changed in your department or in, in, in the city, in the fire service in the city as a result of this? Anything changed as far as how you train, how you train for stress and, and for critical incidents? I don't know that that, that has trained. I think, I think we're more aware of it. Um, we brought back a full-time EAP coordinator that had been um, that had been set aside for a while due to um, staffing issues. We brought that back. Uh, now, um, just last year, we talked about adding on a second person for that. The, the, the stress that we've seen over the last year just due to COVID is something we've not had to deal with before. Um, I, I think one of the things that was positive and um, it, it was it was gradual in um, in its in its impact. It used to be in the fire service, and, and this is globally, that nobody wanted to talk about uh, their mental health. Mm -hmm. If if you had a firefighter in the engine house that was having a hard time pulling hose off the engine or working the pumps, that was okay to talk about. And then you'd come up with a plan, uh, a training plan to get them back to where they need to be. But when someone says, you know, I, I I'm beyond my ability to handle this. I'm, I'm having a hard time coping. Mm -hmm. They're, they're telling you that they're, they're mentally strained and they're, they're reaching a breaking point. And that impacts everything. You, how can you respond if you're not mentally ready, if you're not emotionally ready and, and people realize, Hey, you know, this is okay. They need to get help because that stigma was always there. Well, this guy's crazy. This, this gal's loopy. No, we don't need to put labels on things. All we need to do is recognize that that they have found a place where they're 
um, deficient, okay, and they need some help. Let's get them some help and and keep the the judgment on the sideline. Mm-hmm. So I think I think mental and behavioral health in that respect in the fire service has come a long way because we don't have the stigma attached to it anymore. Mm-hmm. How important is it for you as a leader to really be aware of the people that you're you're leading and and aware of their uh, perhaps their mental state or, or even their, their, their personal practices and staying, you know, well. Well, it, it's difficult to measure that in the short term. Um, we rely on our officers and our battalion chiefs to, to kind of gauge how their people are doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that generally comes out in the form of behaviors. Mm-hmm. If, if, if somebody has, has been a, a model employee, and suddenly they're showing up to work late, they're getting into arguments, they're having a hard time staying focused on task. There's probably something going on. And, and you establish that through your management relationships with, with these people. Um, so with having an EAP full time, we can say, hey, do you need to talk to somebody? Do we need to, to you know, put you on administrative leave for a little bit? and Let's sort these out. And again, you do that in a way that that's not bringing judgment on them. I'm here to help you. I know that that you can be a great asset to our department. Let's get you back to that point. Let's let's help you. Let let me, you know, give you some resources that you need to to, to get back to that sense of normalcy. Mm-hmm. What was the response from others in this when you started going through counseling? You started, you know, working on your your own stuff what was the response from people around you did they rally around you did they was there some stigma there you know what was what was that response like well i don't i don't think there was either of those it was it was pretty neutral people realized that that i needed um you know they needed to be patient with me i think but as far as what i was doing for myself i i wasn't real open about that mm-hmm. i was coming into work uh, I would talk to people, um, and people say, hey, "How are you doing?" I said, "You know, I, I, I think I'm, I think I'm going to be okay." But that that healing um, step is really a process because throughout that, I would have good days and I would have bad days. In my particular case, the the counselor kept saying, "You need to get back on that horse. You need to to know, you know, deep down in your heart of hearts that you can handle the next incident." The problem I was having is that fire came in on January 26th. I typically have about three to five working fires a month. That was that was my workload up until that point. And I, I had been a chief officer for about three years when that happened. I didn't have another working fire until July 4th. Oh, wow. So that's a long time. That's six months to go where, where in the back of your mind, you're saying, will I be okay? Am I going to um, get back and perform at a level that's acceptable or am I going to crumble under the stress? It's, it's just a long time to before you have that test. Mm-hmm. And um, you people didn't realize that. They don't they don't know how many fires I've had because uh, my my crews had different days off. Um, they didn't know if I was working overtime and had a fire there. And so that that became a bit of a struggle. Um, one of the, one of the best pieces of advice that, that I'd heard, uh, and that I used is, is 
whatever your measuring period is, you've just got to get to that next measuring period. You know, whether that's from one breath to the next, whether it's from, from one, you know, blink of the eye to the next, my measuring period that I identified later on through counseling, I had to get through the night. I just had to get through the night because I wasn't sleeping well. I was having nightmares. I had to be able to get through the night. I had to be able to see the next sunrise. That became my measuring period. And um, when you're when you're that psychologically harmed, sometimes it's helpful to reduce your workload to one measuring period. For me, it was sun, sunset to sunrise. Mm-hmm. And and what was your process to get through that? Um, well, a lot of prayer, mm-hmm. um, a, lo- a lot of um, talks with my wife, uh, a, a lot. I had to remind myself that there are better days ahead. I had to remind myself that that um, you know there are others that have have been burdened by this as well, um, and and a, a strong faith in in in, in my b- religious beliefs. Um, event, and it wasn't, it wasn't steady progress. I might have two or three steps forward and then one back, you know? Um, so there was, there was a lot of internal growth, I think that I was doing. What do you think are some of the biggest challenges for fire companies in, in really keeping their members healthy and well? Well, I, I think first of all, in the fire service, we have to get to the point universally where we recognize that mental and emotional health, behavioral health is just as important as those other uh, criteria for which we measure. That that has to be accepted across the board. Um, if if you have an individual in your department who struggles on EMS runs, they can still do fire runs. But if you struggle emotionally and, and mentally, it doesn't matter what the nature of that run is, you're going to struggle on that run. So it, it is important. And, and the leaders have to um, recognize that it's their job to provide those resources to their members. Okay, you, you, can, you, can't, um, you can't force them to take those resources, but you can lead them to that. Hey, this is what's going to work for me. Um, and... I, I think sometimes leaders need to um, be um, fragile enough to say, hey, you know what? There's sometimes that I struggle too. Because if, if you're a member of a department, you only got two or three years on, you think that your struggles are unique to you and that nobody else struggles. And I can pretty much guarantee you that over the course of a 25 to 30 year career, people have struggled. Now, they, that doesn't mean that they allow these the, these different incidents of trauma to overwhelm them, mm-hmm. you know, but they do struggle and they have to realize, OK, I, I've got to take some time off for me. I've got to, you know, I've got to I've got to be good to me so I can be good to, to the community I serve. Do you think there's a sense of comfort in knowing that your fellow firefighter has also dealt with this? I think there is because. Um, uh, again, nobody wants to think that, hey, this is a problem that they're not going to come up with a solution for because it only impacts me. Mm-hmm. In, in my situation, City of Toledo has, right now we've got about 515 members. So 
it becomes significant when you look at the size of your department and you say, hey, look, these people are struggling. And and some people struggle more than others. They it gets to a point where they get a call off sick. You know, they don't think they can function. So if if you can if you can come up with a program where um, people are are very well supported mentally and emotionally, it it should cut down on um, absenteeism due to those stressors. It should create a better working environment within the within the firehouse itself. Mm-hmm. So, what do you think is the future for? resiliency and wellness in the fire service? Well, that's an interesting question because um, I was just on a um, Zoom meeting yesterday with a gentleman named Jeff Dill. Jeff Dill is a retired battalion chief from Illinois who has a website called Firefighter Behavioral Health Alliance. Um, And over the past two years, we have lost more firefighters to suicide than we have to structural firefighting. Hmm. Uh, and it's not just firefighters, it's EMTs, it's dispatchers, it's law enforcement. Um, so, you know, anytime I um, engage in talks about safety, firefighter health, firefighter safety, the two primary things that we talk about anymore and this has been true for probably the last three or four years is cancer awareness and psychological resiliency. Those, I I don't think you can go to a seminar anywhere in this country, um, whether it's FDIC, whether it's fire rescue international, whether it's any of the multitude of regional classes where they're talking about firefighter health, firefighter safety, NFPA 1500, and not have a discussion regarding one or both of those topics. And so it, it's since it's such a front of line topic that eventually it'll trickle down to everyone to to really make this a priority. Yes, and it has to start at leadership. Sure, it has to. It has to be. Um, they have to make that a primary focus at at the level of leadership. Everything comes down from leadership. Yeah. I and, know, and I think this is this is a case where you can you can enjoy successes with the assistance and cooperation of your union local hmm. because they're they're also very interested in this as well. Mm-hmm. Do you think sometimes it becomes a matter of convincing the bean counters to provide the the resource, financial resources to make these things happen? That, that's part of it. And that is part of it. Um, the um, uh, assistance to firefighters grants just came out. It just opened this week, I think uh, Monday or Tuesday of this week, that um, um, that period for submissions. And um, I know that many departments are looking at how can we um, attract some of this money and use it for um uh, our, our mental health and our mental well-being of our of our department. Um, Jeff Dill, I mentioned earlier, he put something out that that um, may be of some help to those departments who are looking at applying for AFG in that area. Mm-hmm. 
I think just in talking to people that I've talked to around the country, it's, it's, it's one of those things that for many years kind of was under the surface and, and now it's becoming more of a, a talking point uh, with many agencies and, and leaders. And I think that's important. And you know, when I think the problem with it for years is that you, you didn't want to expose your vulnerabilities. Mm-hmm. Um, we respond in, in people's time of need. So we we have a little bit of a superhero complex. So you you can't show your soft underbelly if you're called upon to be mitigating emergencies, you know, throughout your community. The fact of the matter is we all suffer from those stresses. And and to be able to continue to respond in a meaningful way, we've got to be able to take care of ourselves. And I think that's where it's important for you know, civilians like myself and others to to go to our our city leaderships or our people who you know help fund the fire service and other first responder communities. Say, look, this is an important part of our community, keeping our community healthy and safe, and so we need to keep our first responders healthy and to provide those resources so that you all can have uh, the help and training that you need. Because as I've talked to many people, it's much less expensive to to have the training ahead of time than it is to fix the problem in the backside. Correct. Right. Prevention is generally a lot more cost efficient than a cure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, well, well, Deputy Chief Price, I, you know, I want to say I'm sorry for your loss and the loss that you had in your community. And I know with leaders like you, you'll be able to, um, continue to to provide resources and training for your members and and to those those new firefighters that come up the ranks and uh, hopefully in the future there'll be uh, fewer suicides and and more healthy people responding to our emergencies oh that's my hope as well thank you very much yeah. I appreciate this opportunity well it's been great having you on the program and just as a as, as you know anecdotal uh, side note I live in Emmitsburg Maryland and oh, okay. I've, I'm sure you've probably been here. I've, I've been there numerous times. Yeah. And I'm I'm sure that the two gentlemen who you lost are are memorialized on at the, the Fallen Firefighter Memorial they are. in Emmitsburg. They absolutely are. Yeah. So uh, we're it's a big part of our community here, and that that event every year is uh, really a meaningful event, and and uh, it draws thousands of people here to. Yeah, they do a very good job with that very somber occasion. Right. Yeah. I've I've not had the privilege of attending, but I've uh, watched and uh, actually was able to film. They actually asked me to come film the, the raising of the flag where they take each flag that's presented to the family and they raise yeah. it on the flagpole there by the memorial. And I was able to observe that and see that. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, well, thank you so much for being on the program. And My pleasure. For the, for the work you're doing, for serving your community. I really appreciate that. Thank you. You have been listening to the First Responder Leadership Podcast. Be sure to connect with us on our social media sites at PTSD911Movie on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. Today's show has been brought to you by PTSD911, the documentary film that will raise awareness, smash the stigma of asking for help, and inspire change in agencies around the country. We are looking for people who want to help us tell this story. If you are passionate about the first responder community, please make a tax-deductible donation toward the production of our film. Visit PTSD911movie.com.
www.patreon.com. Click on the support this film button and make a donation. We're so grateful for everyone who's joined with us to help us make this film a reality. We can't do it without your support. Thank you. And we would love to have your feedback on this show. So please smash the subscribe button and go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. That really means a lot and it helps more people discover the show. My name is Conrad Weaver and we'll see you next time on the First Responder Leadership Podcast. Podcast.